Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Now for those who've just joined us, uh, we're doing a sermon series based on the gospel according to Luke. And this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 24 to 48, the passage that uh, Daryl read out earlier where the author Luke walks us through three scenes. The first scene is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the second scene is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And third, Jesus' cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. Through each scene, I want to paint a picture of God that I hope will provide spiritual nutrients for the deepening of our faith in God, which is such a central theme of the Christian life. Jesus says it very succinctly in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have faith, have faith in God. The first scene, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. At long last, after setting out from Galilee back in Luke 9, 51, Jesus is making final preparations to enter Jerusalem. After a day's travel, a 900-meter climb from Jericho, he reaches Bethphage and Bethany, three kilometers due east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. He's at the summit in verse 37. As he begins his descent in verse 41, he sees Jerusalem. Quite remarkably, Luke devotes seven verses to Jesus' careful instructions to the two of his disciples about securing a donkey for his symbolic ride into Jerusalem. I think there's a slide there after, yeah. So that's the route that Jesus took uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. So Jesus tells them that the animal must be one that has never been ridden. According to Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy 21, such animals were set aside for certain sacred purposes. If people ask what they're doing, they're to simply say, the Lord needs the donkey. Now Jesus must have prearranged this with the owner or might have utilized an ancient custom in which citizens were required to keep an animal ready for use by dignitaries, a custom which was also extended to rabbis of which Jesus was. The disciples set off and things happened just as Jesus said. And they then threw their cloaks on the donkey and put Jesus on it. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, his disciples, including many who followed him from Galilee and living in Jerusalem, in Judea, lined the road with their cloaks, welcoming him and joyfully praising God, proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now there's no mistaking of what this act means. This was the scene, the same scene, Elisha, uh, uh, this is the same scene after Elisha the prophet secretly appointed Jehu as king in 2 Kings 9.13. In other words, Jesus is deliberately presenting himself as Jerusalem's promised king and Messiah. He's fulfilling a well-known prophecy 
a messianic prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's why the whole scene has such a regal and messianic feel about it. Though Luke does not cite Zechariah, he, he is clearly wanting his readers to make a connection between the scene and Zechariah's prophecy. And this would explain, probably explain, why Luke devote, devoted seven verses to Jesus' instructions about securing a donkey for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. In response to that, the Pharisees, uh, the Jewish leaders uh, at the time who were really against Jesus and others who were anti-Jesus, ordered his disciples to seize and desist from the outrageous celebrations of Jesus as the King and Messiah. Jesus refuses. The time for secrecy is past. He has visited Jerusalem in the past as a worshiper, but no longer. The time has come for confrontation between the city's rightful king, between the city's rightful high priest and its present and corrupt rulers. Jesus is upping the stakes. What do we learn from the first scene? What picture does the first scene paint about God? I like to suggest that in the first scene, God wants, to, wants us to see him as a God of peace. He wants us to experience him as peace. See, Jesus riding on a donkey to Jerusalem is rich in symbolism. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, kings would ride horses to war. But if they came in peace, they would ride on a donkey. See, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem... He was clearly presenting himself as king and messiah who would bring peace, lasting peace. Peace because he's king, because he's sovereign. Peace is possible because he cares. Peace because he loves. Peace because he knows our every need. In Paul's prayer in Romans 15 verse 13 is beautiful and captures this. He says, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. See the links between peace and trust? See the link between peace, trust, and hope? See, they're all linked together. In Jesus 14, and sorry, in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace be with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you peace as the world gives. It's a different kind of peace. It's a supernatural peace. It is a God-rooted peace. Do not let your hearts 
be troubled and do not be afraid. Let my peace rule and reign in you so that these troubles will be but a glimpse. The world offers all kinds of paths toward peace, but only in Jesus do we find true and lasting peace. True and lasting pathway to peace, which he secured through his suffering and death. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. If we have peace in our hearts, it's possible because of the punishment Jesus took for us. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. But Jesus doesn't just want us, want to give us peace. He is peace. In other words, you cannot have the peace of God without knowing the God of peace. You can't separate peace from God. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. One of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, is peace. If we want to experience the peace of God, then we must walk in submission to the God of peace. That was Jesus' pathway to peace, by surrendering himself totally to the will of God, even though it would cost him his life. This means that we must be prepared for the real possibility that in God's infinite wisdom, Let me say this very clearly. This means that we must be prepared for the real possibility that in God's infinite wisdom, suffering may become the means through which we experience his lasting peace. But whenever you go through storms at times, go through storms, whatever shape that takes, know that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is with you. He may calm the external storms. He may calm the circumstances that's raging around us. But other times he may just choose to calm the internal storms within you while the circumstances around you are still raging. And go both ways. Have faith in God. Trust him to do whatever he believes is the best for us. In scene number two, we find a passage that's only found in Luke. There is a sharp shift in mood from joy to lament. The language is full of pathos. Here we catch a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem. The Greek term there for weeping is not just tears. It means intense sobbing. Jesus sobs intensely over Jerusalem. Why? Why is he sobbing intensely? The nation of Israel, of which Jerusalem is the capital, is run out of time. 
God's constant wooing of Israel and warnings to Israel to return to him through the prophets of old for centuries have reportedly fallen on deaf ears. Even with God in the flesh, physically in their midst, they spurn him just like the citizens with the noblemen in the parable we looked at last week in verse 14. We don't want this man to be our king. We don't want this man to rule over us. The people of Israel have chosen to ignore and reject the day of God's visitation or God's coming to them in the flesh in Jesus. The decision to reject Jesus, the Messiah, will cost them dearly. Like the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus predicts God's imminent judgment on Israel. The nation will suffer total destruction. Indeed, in AD 70, that is what happened when the future emperor of Rome, General Titus, sacked the city after a five-month-long siege. The temple was destroyed, thousands of people were slaughtered, and thousands more enslaved and scattered. In the parable last week, we looked at God's, we learned that God's judgment upon the wicked is a reality that we cannot dismiss as tempting as, it is, as that is to do. But here in this scene, and more importantly, Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem because of its pending destruction clearly shows us that God takes no pleasure whatsoever in bringing his judgment to bear where and when absolutely necessary. He does so with a heavy and broken heart. And what's the second picture of God that we see from the second scene? When I reflect on Jesus' lack of fear in publicly sobbing over Jerusalem, the city he loved that refused to receive him, I feel safe. I feel a sense deep sense of safety with Jesus, a deep sense of safety with God. In Matthew's account of the same incident, we have Jesus speaking these words as he's intensely sobbing over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those I send to you, how often I have longed to gather you gather you as a hen, a mother hen, gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So he's sobbing as he's saying these words. I'm like a mother hen, longing to gather you under my wings, but you simply refuse to come to me. In Isaiah 49, verses 15 to 16, God, and God again describes himself in a very motherly way. In response to the charge that he was abandoning his people, this was God's response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. 
What a beautiful picture of God. This morning, if you want to know if God the Father has, a, has something of a mother's love in him, you've got your answer. See, for some of us, God as a father is pretty easy for us. But God as a mother, because of your own personal experience. Well, in these two passages and many more, if you're wondering if God has something of a mother's love for you, you've got your answer. This is not the first time Jesus freely wept, which, by the way, is not a, just a female thing. Those of you who know me, you know that's the, that to be the case. During, in Hebrews 5, verse 7, we read, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers. He frequently offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission to God. He wept at the death of his dear friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. This is the point. If it's okay for Jesus to cry, then it is okay for us to cry too. Whatever the reason is for our tears, whether they're tears of grief, tears of sorrow, tears of bitterness, tears of regret, tears of shame, tears of failure, tears of repentance, God sees them and God receives them. This is what King David wrote in Psalms 56, verses 8 to 11. You, God, keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know. God is on my side. I praise God for what he has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what he has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortal, mortals do to me? Josh Powell writes, Psalm 56 teaches us that God does not simply dismiss our pain. He doesn't acknowledge it and then move on. No, he records them. He keeps record, personal, intimate, caring. This is who our God is. In God, we do not have a king so lofty and above our difficulties that he sweeps away our tears with disdain. No, we have a king who has descended into the pain with us. You do not cry alone. Jesus, understand where you are more than you realize. Jesus, understand where you are more than you realize. Now on to the final scene, where Jesus wastes no time making his way to the temple, the most sacred site in Judaism, which he refers to as my temple, to purge it of one of its abuses. He enters into the outer court, or the court of the Gentiles. Here, worshipers would buy sacrificial animals and receive the proper currency for the temple text, all normal activity that was a part of temple worship at the time. 
as instructed by Moses. So it dates way back to, uh, to the times of the Exodus. What riled Jesus was not the practices in and of themselves, but the corruption involved. And let me give you two examples of the corruption, cor- the corrupt practices. The first one, the law of Moses stated that any animal offered to God had to be flawless. Men running the temple would inspect the animal brought for sacrifice, but they would arbitrarily find fault with the animal in order to supply a suitable replacement in exchange with a fee, of course. Ironically, the suitable replacement had only moments before been an unsuitable sacrifice of a previous worshiper. See that? The second example, each, with, uh, with, uh, each worshiper is to bring monetary offering to the Lord according to the law of Moses. The chief priest running the temple refused to accept any currency except shekels minted in Israel. So worshipers had to convert their Roman currency into shekels. Money changes there would happily provide the service, but with an inbuilt surcharge. And that inbuilt surcharge, some of which would go to the chief priest to fund their corrupt hold on power. In other words, the temple had become an excessive excessively commercial enterprise built on corruption, on exploitation, and greed, rather than a place of prayer and worship to God. The time of weeping is over for Jesus. In righteous anger, he physically drives out the sellers and money changes out. Luke, for some reason, omitted this this detail, but you'll find this in Matthew, Mark, and in John. And then Jesus loudly proclaims from Isaiah 56, 7, and Jeremiah 7, verse 11, the scripture declares, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And as he is voicing this and quoting this, There were tears in his words. My house has always been designed, has always been purposed to be a place of prayer, to be a place of worship, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The Greek term for thieves refers also to men who would ambush travelers, beat them mercilessly, strip them of every possession, and then leave them for dead. Like in the story in the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. With the words of the prophets behind him, Jesus condemns the desecration of God's original purpose for the temple. In verses 48 to 40, uh, 47 to 48, the concluding verses in that passage. After that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and the other leaders of the people began planning to kill him. But they could not, they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word he said. From the time of Jesus' cleansing of the temple until Passover, 
when he had his final meal with his disciples before his crucifixion, Jesus used the temple as the site of his daily teaching. The religious establishment, they went ballistic. Jesus' cleansing of the temple, which blatantly challenges their authority and their practices, cannot be overlooked. They're more determined than ever to kill Jesus, but they don't know how to because the public just can't get enough of Jesus' teaching. That's the last scene there. What do we learn about God from the last scene? We often look for intimacy in all the wrong places, don't we? But the one intimacy we can have that will never enslave is our intimacy with God. And in the final scene, that is the picture of God that we have, a God who wants intimacy with us. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Intimacy for intimacy's sake. Not intimacy as a means to an end. And that was the original and sole purpose of the tabernacle in Exodus before it became a temple built by King Solomon. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God amongst his people. It was also the place where God's people could meet with him. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God speaking, I will meet you there. I will speak to you from the seat of mercy between two winged creatures that sit, that sit atop the covenant chest. From there I will speak to you about all the commands and instructions I have for the people of Israel. See, the temple... The tabernacle was a temporary structure, was always a temporary structure, foreshadowing the time when God would become flesh in Jesus and subsequently after his death and resurrection make us individually and corporately his church, his dwelling place, his place of dwelling. Uh, The apostle John uses actually uses the word tabernacle in his description of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 4, and the word became flesh and tabernacle among us. We look upon his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's longing for intimacies with us is spelled out so clearly in this wonderful passage found in John chapter 10, verses 11. The 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Not me. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep knows me. And this is the the next line is just stunning. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Did you catch that? I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. What is he saying? What is he saying? 
the kind of relationship he wants with you and I is the one that he enjoys with his Father. That's the level of intimacy that our Lord wants. Just as I know the Father, and the Father knows me, I want the same for us. It's hard to believe, I know, but I'm putting it out there. What level of intimacy does God want with us? Does Jesus want with us? The kind that he had, the kind that he experiences, the kind that he has with his Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He refers to that for the second time. In other words, God's longing for intimate relationship with us runs so deep that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in order to restore intimate relationship with us. Brothers and sisters, our intimacy with God is vital to our faith, just as faith is vital to our intimacy with God. This level of intimacy is available to us. Here are the three things we learn about God from the three scenes. Here are the three pictures of God that we gain from the three scenes that we've just explored and unpacked. Number one, God is peace. God is peace, and he wants you to experience peace. And the only way to have that peace is to be in submission to him, the God of peace. The second picture of God that I want you to to leave church with is that God is safe. Your tears are safe with him. Your secrets are safe with God. Your struggles are safe with God. God does not look upon your tears with disdain and tell you to stop it. Be stoic. Stop crying right now. You're behaving like a wuss. We're safe with God. And the third picture that we have is one of intimacy. God wants to have an intimate relationship with each and every single person here. It's available to each and every single person here. This week, as an application to the message, talk to the Lord about any of these things that you're struggling with God over. It might be one or it might be all, but whichever resonates with you, whichever one that stands out to you and you'll walk with him that you're wrestling with, talk to him about it this week. Yeah, Don't walk out and go, oh, that was a good message. This message is only as good as you will apply it, as you will take it back to the Lord and say, God, the whole idea that you're safe, that really, that really spoke to me. I really don't feel safe with you. I sometimes wonder if you listen to me at all, or that secretly you listen to me, but secretly in your heart you've tuned out because I'm such a myth. If that's an area that you're wrestling with, go to God. Say, God, help me see that I'm safe. Help me see that you are mother hand 
longs to gather me under your wings. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, throughout this week, I pray that you will continue to paint these pictures I've started out painting through the three scenes we've looked at this morning. You are the artists that we need. You're the psychologist that we need. You're the psychiatrist that we need. You're the doctor that we ultimately need. You're the counselor that we ultimately need. We have warped ideas of you. We have broken ideas of you. Our pictures of you are very distorted, clouded, messed up, perverted by sin, by our human interaction with our significant others. And we bring that and impose these experiences onto you, our experiences with our human parents. If they're great, then our relationship with you is probably better. But Lord, if we have warped relationship, hurtful relationship, broken relationship with our parents, then it's most likely to affect our relationship with you too. So you know our history. You know where we've come from. You know our our stories inside out. So Holy Spirit, I ask this week that you will take the canvas that represents how we see you. Lord, would you add colors, the necessary colors that have gone? Would you add the lines that are missing? Would you add, Lord, would you, would you restore the distortions that's on our canvases of you? Beginning with these three pictures that we looked at today, that you are peace, that you want us to have peace with you, that you want us to experience your peace, your lasting peace as a reality, that you are safe, that you're someone we can go to and know that our tears, that our sorrows, that our shame, that our secrets will be safe with you. And that lastly, you are you're wanting and longing for intimacy, so much so that you gave your son sacrificially to restore intimacy with us. I ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.